Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. So, how are you doing today? After listening to Michael Mithoffer in last week's podcast, I picked up that old Burning Man fever once again, and uh, I've been checking out some of the pictures of last year's burn that can be found all over the internet. And in fact, if you want to see a few of the pictures that I took during the Palenque Norte lectures last year, you can find them through the link on the front page of the MatrixMasters.com site. In addition to my Burning Man photos that you'll find there, uh, there are also quite a few pictures that Bill Rads has taken at various events held at Alex and Allison Gray's Gallery in Manhattan. And uh, Bill has also posted some of his pictures from the last Mind States Conference, which was held in San Francisco, uh, and also the Mind States Conference in Oaxaca, which you might remember was where Bruce Damer gave the talk that you heard in podcast number 85. This is number 87, by the way, just in case you're wondering. Anyway, since uh, I've been thinking about Burning Man so much, I figured that it's about time I podcast the rest of last year's Planky Norte lecture series that we held in the big tent there at, in Theon Village. As you know, last week I played the talk in which Michael Mithoffer gave a report about the then-current state of affairs and the study of MDMA for the use in curing PTSD that he and his wife Annie are conducting. And we'll be hearing uh, more from the Mithoffers in a few weeks when I do a telephone interview with them to get an update. Uh, But today I'm going to follow up on the topic of MDMA, or ecstasy as it's sometimes called, and our speakers are Dr. George Greer and his uh, wife slash nurse assistant, Requa Talbert who uh, together administered MDMA over a hundred times to 80 people as part of his clinical psychiatric practice uh, from 1980 to 1985. And according to the Hefter Research Institute, of which George is the medical director, George and Requa's review of their work remains the largest published study of the therapeutic use of MDMA. Uh, George and Requa have dedicated considerable effort to the process of bringing psychedelic agents into medical practice, and George was also involved in an extensive hearing process with the DEA uh, to keep MDMA available for medical research, and uh, he coordinated a lobbying campaign in Congress to prevent restrictions on research with new psychedelic drugs. And whenever I think of George, though, my first thought isn't about all of his many honors and achievements. What first comes to my mind is uh, the very first time I met George, and it was at the uh, 2002 Burning Man Festival. might have been 2003, and I can't remember for sure, but if my memory of it is that he was uh, wearing what I took to be a, a toga, and he appeared to be a rather serene Roman senator. Actually, I think he later told me that his costume that night was something other than a toga, but uh, (laughs) my memories of the playa that year have now become a little dusty. Uh, So now let's fast forward to the 2006 Burning Man Festival and join George and Requa in the big tent at Intheon Village for a talk they titled MDMA Before Ecstasy. I'm, I'm Dr. George Greer. This is uh, my wife, Rika Talbert. Hey. That's Nurse Rika. Nurse Rika, yeah. And we did uh, psychotherapy, we did MDMA sessions together in the 1980s. So I thought of uh, everybody knows what ecstasy is, and has any, has anybody here not had ecstasy? Or MDMA? Wow. Okay. Well, then you'll probably learn something, and the rest of you, I hope you're just entertained. But uh, the, the world, when we did this uh, work, it was in 1980 to 1985, and 
nobody had heard of MDMA. The word ecstasy did not exist. There was a, a psychologist in uh, the Bay Area who gave MDMA to people. He called it Adam. His name was Leo Zeff, and he had been doing LSD research, or LSD sessions since the early 60s, when all the sex they told him he needed to do this. So Leo was our teacher, and he uh, thought this would be a good thing to do. So we read a paper by Sasha Shulgin, uh, first paper on people taking MDMA uh, with Dave Nichols, and he said it was a good a good thing. It could help people. We took it together, uh, and we were kind of ripe for marriage at the time, and it, it just made it even riper and cleared a lot of baggage out of our relationship very quickly and, you know, within like five minutes. <laughs> and then she said something like, I'm going to marry you. I said, you and me are going to have babies. Of course you're not. I said, you and me are going to have babies. And George said, well, let's, you know, come down a little first. <laughs> yeah, we had rules. Don't get on the phone. Uh, things like that. But at that time, uh, the only people we knew that were using MDMA were using it for therapy or for personal growth in the Bay Area. It was completely legal. Uh, we, we actually made a bureaucratically legal supply of MDMA. I actually made it in Sasha Shulgin's laboratory so I could say, this is, I made this, I'm giving it to you. There was no underground manufacturer no underground anything it was completely above ground. People, so, yeah. So people could people could know exactly what their dose was. They know where it came from. It, it dispensed with this whole level. And these were mostly um, people that were novices with any kind of psychoactive material. So they didn't have to be afraid of anything but us. But us. Yeah. So it's hard for us to imagine what what that would be like. It's hard for me to imagine uh, that people could take this medicine and talk about it freely and openly. And we, we, were, we kept it quiet. We didn't want it to get in the newspapers because we know it, because it felt good, it would eventually get out on the street and be uh, made illegal as it was. Um, and people came and had great experiences. We wrote two papers on it. Um, which are still the only papers on an MDMA study for, for therapy. And, uh, and then Michael Mithofer's paper will be the, the, a real scientific study on using MDMA for treatment uh, when his work is done. So he's taking it to the next level here uh, 20, 25 years later. So let me say a little bit about how we prepared people, just how, how we went through and, and you might compare it to how you've taken uh, MDMA or ecstasy. But we did a lot of preparation. Uh, people heard about our work, word of mouth, and they called us up and they said, I want to take MDMA, and I think it might be helpful for me. And we gave them a long questionnaire and asked them everything we could think of. And the, main, the most important question was, what is your purpose for taking MDMA? What do you hope to accomplish? Or, or what's, your, what's your direction? even if you don't know what you want to accomplish. Well, why are you doing this? Because this, in our mind, is the most important variable in taking any psychedelic, uh, mind-altering drug, is where are you pointed? You know, are you pointed toward, I want to stop eating bad, I want to learn something, I want to fulfill some fantasy I've had. Uh, I mean, there can be all, all sorts of purposes. You know, I want to, I want to dance. I want to experience the divine. I want to experience the divine. And when I first had psychedelics in college, my roommate, I thought psychedelics just sort of got you high and killed your brain cells. And he said, no, I take, I take mescaline to learn things. And I said, I'm in college. I, you know, I, that's what I'm here for. So, so learning, learning was my whole background of taking psychedelics. I'd go home uh, to Fort Worth from, for summer vacations and all the jocks would say, yeah, man, we took some acid and had a six-pack and drove around town and looked at the colored lights, and it was really cool. And they didn't learn anything. 
so so the, the purpose for taking it really is is the most important thing more important than, than the drug even um, and then we asked them all about their background have they ever had any you know medical psychiatric problems uh, if they had had any serious problems psychiatrically they you know, we wouldn't let them do it because if they really needed more help we couldn't provide that uh, if it, medical conditions heart conditions diabetes liver problems pregnant people and then after all of that if there was just any kind of a gut feeling that led us to think that this might not be a good time or place for this person we would just say you know we're going to have to walk away every now and then there was just a feeling that somebody wasn't ready or or that we just didn't know so if there was even even if everything else seemed okay but we had a bad feeling about it we would just decline yeah even if we couldn't explain it it's just you know there's just a gut feeling it just doesn't feel right and I don't know why that's our, our teacher Leo said you know just don't do it I mean there's very little what, what our conscious minds are aware of so then we got all that information and we met with them and we went over their whole life with them and then we told them our backgrounds uh, not in quite so much detail but our history of getting involved with, with psychedelic medicines and MDMA so that they knew who we were completely and answered all their questions about us so that that we as their sitters were they knew who their sitter was and they knew that they felt comfortable in us being in control of their environment and if they didn't feel comfortable with that well then they wouldn't do it and we you know we gave them a lot of information about all the possible negative things we could think of that might happen with MDMA and if that scared them off that was great and they just feel like they're not ready for it and uh, one of the things we told them was if they should be prepared to experience absolutely anything worst experience of their life confusion you know disruption of relationships you know anything just to, willing to face absolutely anything that came up and that both screened people out who who probably shouldn't be doing it and made our job easier by, by screening those people out and having people be totally prepared so they could totally surrender to the experience of it anything you more want to say about the before beforehand um, there was another piece of well there was a formal structure which um, Leo had always told us with any kind of medicine no matter how how dissociated from normal reality people get if you ask a person for an agreement to a structure before you start if people make a conscious decision to no I won't be violent if they say out loud no I won't leave the premises no I won't leave I won't use the phone whatever no part of our structure was we would not explicitly have sex with our clients or each other so that, so that we would say these things out loud and we would ask them to agree to that and they would agree to that and Leo said that you know you can invoke this structure and people will remember and they can honor an agreement a deep agreement that they make consciously even when they're traveling we don't know where and even though MDMA technically is not a major psychedelic every now and then somebody would insist on having a white light experience you know it's just a catalyst so technically pharmacologically no it's not acid but every now and then somebody would have a huge experience and still they would be able to honor that agreement so beyond all the structure we'd say these specific things will you agree to this yes we agree to this yes and then at the end of that we go will you turn over all conscious control to us if I ask you to do anything lie down whatever will you agree to com comply will you comply with the structure and if they really couldn't go there then maybe they didn't trust me enough to take medicine with me in the first place so that's kind of the final level of screening and if you can't agree to this structure because we're just we're either in our house but we're in their house we're not in a hospital we don't have medical backup beyond ourselves so that was that like that made all the work kind of happen before the trip that was the huge homework was these agreements yeah the four basic agreements were there will be no sexual interaction no physical aggression or destruction of property uh, we'll, we're all going to stay there 
at that location until we all agreed that the session's over. And if we ask them to do anything based on the structure of the session, they agree to do it, whatever it is. So it basically turns over their all their ego functions to us. So they don't have to worry about tracking anything or keeping track of things or remembering to do this or that or you know, am I being polite or, or whatever. They can just let it all go and get out of the ego and go into the depth of whatever the medicine uh, reveals to them. So on the uh, day of the session, we told them not to eat food for about six hours and uh, to help the absorption. We'd usually give them 100 to 125 milligrams and give them a choice there. After an hour and a half or so, another 50 milligrams if they wanted it. Um, and at the beginning, we would read them a prayer. Uh, it's kind of a surrender prayer that that Leo Zeff used. And it's a, it's a Christian prayer, and, and we're not necessarily Christian, but it, it's a really good... Uh, we thought it was just a good attitude uh, Good for attitude orientation. And we would just say, you know, whatever, whatever these words are helpful, then you can take them in. Whatever's not helpful, you can let them go. But I'll just read that. Uh, this is by Francis Fenelon, who was some sort of priest or monk around a, around 1700. Lord, I know not what I ought to ask of Thee. Thou only knowest what I need. Thou lovest me better that I know how to love myself. O Father, give to thy child that which he himself knows not how to ask. I dare not ask either for crosses or for consolations. I simply present myself before thee. I open my heart to thee. Behold my needs, which I know not myself. See and do according to thy tender mercy. Smite or heal, depress me or raise me up. I adore all thy purposes without knowing them. I am silent. I offer myself in sacrifice. I yield myself to thee. I would have no other desire than to accomplish thy will. Teach me to pray. Pray thyself in me. Amen. So if someone's able to maintain this kind of attitude, even for a moment, you know, they're really set to just surrender to a very positive uh, experience. And basically, we uh, had them lie down uh, with eye shades and headphones. We didn't enforce it, of course, and played instrumental music. And they just had their session. And if they wanted to talk to us, we would listen. We would support them, hold their hand. We would discourage them from dialoguing with us in an interpersonal dialogue because we really wanted them just to experience themselves in this state. And then after a few hours, four or five hours they would start to come down and then we would start to talk and interact and over the next two or three hours it was more like regular psychotherapy sessions uh, talking about problems in their lives or their current life or childhood or whatever came up to help them work through their feelings and come to uh, in integration and closure and consolidate things they learned uh, have new ideas about it and the coming down phase actually was more sort of emotional psychotherapy seemed to happen more in the latter phase when, when the, the medicine's wearing off and they're integrating than the sort of the peak phase are just kind of, you know, everything's fabulous, which it is. And, and then they're integrating into their life in the lower phase. Yeah, it was that transition of coming down, still feeling a little altered, but normal life starts to come back in and that's that that's that zone where real work can happen. And that's usually what did happen. We chose anybody who asked us to do it who met the criteria and was willing to do it. Yeah, these were these were what most people would call normal volunteers. These were functional people. Nobody was acutely psychotic, or you know, people have problems. Or but um, yeah, this was in, started in San Francisco and then ended up in Santa Fe and, and most of the people we knew were involved in some kind of meditation or spiritual practice. Not all had had psychedelics before, um, but most of them had that kind of orientation. 
a lot of it's mostly physical. The only persons that really had what people might call a bad trip were people that had increased anxiety. Every now and then somebody would have panic. If you're prone to anxiety, you can have panic attacks afterwards. You gotta let people know that's a possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there were there people there were some people, three or four people who had a history of panic attacks in their life, maybe years before. And those were the only people who had a problem with severe anxiety during or after the session. One of those women, uh, she was in her 50s, she was going through menopause and she had horrible hot flashes. And her MDMA session, it was more like an LSD session, she said she regressed to the point of being some life form that crawled from the ocean onto land and sort of went through evolution of life and uh, and then she said for about a week she didn't have any hot flashes at all and uh, we had another another woman who said she would take a little a small dose just before her menstrual period would wipe out the irritability that she experienced with premenstrual moods so this woman had no hot flashes this older woman or older I mean older than us then uh, <laughs> but then afterwards she had a panic attack or two in, in the two or three weeks afterwards also so she was she was different both in what she got out of it and, and but other than the panic and then the physical symptoms of jaw tension and tiredness afterwards or low mood a day or two afterwards that was really a, for the people that we gave it to uh, yeah, I mean, we don't have experience with that. Uh, so, uh, the question was, what about doing uh, craniosacral work or, in, or intense body work with MDMA? And I, I know we just don't have experience with that, so I don't know what to say. <laughs> I think it can be very useful. Yeah, because I think that there is, it's, a, it's a very physical experience. There's this kind of peripheral um, anesthesia where you don't feel surface pain so much, but you can feel deep work. Oh, you mean that you would the deep body work would release some blood clot in your in your veins? That would be a danger with any deep body work. That would that would be you and your body worker got to yeah. get down with your medical history. I, I can't think of any reason why MDMA would be more likely to have a clot released from your vein. But, you know, that's just theory. Her, her question is about, uh, she wanted to know about the chemistry of any, uh, the chemistry of MDMA, how it affects your body, if there are any after effects. Uh, very briefly, we did not compare with MDA. They are similar, I believe. Uh, MDMA releases uh, the neurotransmitters serotonin and dopamine predominantly. I also think maybe some norepinephrine. So we know it does that. Uh, why that creates the experience people have is not well understood at all. Um, my idea is that MDMA decreases fear. The, the physiological, neurophysiological experience of fear so that if if you have a thought that normally would be frightening to you that would make you anxious and tense up and be defensive and push it away that reaction just is blocked so you don't push it away and it just whatever is scary just comes through and, you're, and you, it's, you can't feel afraid and uh, so that's why I think that when people are doing uh, talking in their relationship, they say things that normally they would have been too inhibited to say, and they can hear things without reacting to it in a defensive way. They or, or old trauma can come up. You know, things that you may have been blocking for many, many years not aware of, when that's not in the way anymore, lots of old material can come up. 
you work through it, that's it. That's why it's like, oh yeah, five minutes, that's all it took for us to, you know, clean it up. Yeah, yeah, memories can come up. And MDMA is not the only way to do that. Uh, I mean, there are many techniques to decrease fear and and enhance relationships and, and recover from trauma, but that's that's my theory about it. And there are, there is some neurochemistry about drugs that that boost serotonin or activate serotonin receptors block uh, the fear response in animals, like animals, mice that are trained to freeze when they're shot. If you give them a, a serotonin agonist drug, they, they forget to freeze. So that can, that fear conditioning is eliminated, you know, which is can have good and bad consequences. But for therapy, it's a good, it's a helpful thing. Yeah. Question: Sample size. Okay. He asked our sample size. We gave MDMA to about 80 people over five years, about 100 or so sessions. Uh, we published on the first 29 people where we sent. Uh, questionnaires after the fact, up to two years later, asking everything we'd asked before, all the details. Uh, so our, our published statistic, you know, statistics was 29 people. Uh, depression afterwards, no one had any lasting depressive mood more than uh, a couple of days in our group. But again, they're, they're pretty, you know, the walking well, pretty, I mean, normal neurotic people. We have hunches, we don't, there's no data, but we have hunches that when people overuse, when they really deplete neurotransmitters, you're going to see more of those things, more anxiety, more depression, but that's just an idea, we don't know. Well, we use some, sometimes use some tryptophan. Sometimes if people were, uh, had a lot of muscle tension, we would give them Valium, and then we learned that we could give them Enderol or, or Atenolol, which is a beta sympathetic blocker, an adrenaline blocker. And that helped a lot with the physical uh, muscle tightness, that sort of thing. You know, a, a lot of the stimulation when people get jaw tightness, when you take a big dose, when you, you really get tired, you really get depressed, that's a sympathetic nervous stimulation. So some people are more or less sensitive to this. If, if you had a beta blocker, it cuts the sympathetic stimulation, but not the central effect. So, you know, what your conscious mind is experiencing still happens, but you're not, you know, grinding your teeth off. It's, I, I'd say it's more your genetics, because, you know, like women experience these kinds of side effects on lower doses than men do. Some people don't get it at all. Some people get used to it. Yeah. Just to answer his question of the people, I didn't really say people had depression here. I called it fatigue. 23 of the 29 people had fatigue lasting a few hours to a few days. Uh, for 16, it was less than two days. So it was more sort of tired, low energy than like down. You mean healthy in a, from a physical, psychological way? You know that's really hard to say. It's I think uh, people are people are so unique. Every person is so unique. It's what's healthy or harmful for that person. And uh, you know if you had a thousand people just like you, we could do a research study <laughs> with a control group and we could answer that question. But we don't. Uh, generally. We felt, I feel, that if for the therapy, we, we wouldn't give people a session more than every several weeks. And the dose was, the most we would give would be 125 plus 75 for a, a large man, usually, every several weeks. So the most sessions people had with us was, I think, three, well, five full sessions was a, a man who was uh, had terminal cancer, and he did, he did great. Uh, but you know, everybody's different. All our brains are different. Sensitivities are different. You know, I've, I've heard of people they took you know 50 milligrams and had a horrible time and felt horrible afterwards for a long time. So everybody's different. Did we usually start low? No, we usually started with with we said you know if you want low, medium, or high dose, you tell us low, medium, or high, and we'll give we'll decide on the milligrams. 
so we let them child. We didn't we didn't start low. We started with what would do you know be a decent uh, dose to get them through that threshold of of not having fear and feeling good without overdoing it. Well, you know, I'm 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 not I'm not at all. She's asking what is the medical dose compared to a street dosage. I'm I'm no expert at all on street doses. I've heard that street doses are supposed to be 100 milligrams. So we would give a little more than that. But that's, you know, some people take four or five street doses. Right. So. Uh, you? So are you looking for milligram per kilogram or just kind of eyeball and say you're being We, we, did, it was more a, a general way. We said, you know, you're a man, you're, well, men are bigger, so it's size. We, women seem to be more sensitive, independent of size, we decided, we don't know why. Uh, actually, some research has been done that shows women are more sensitive milligrams per kilogram in some parameters in, in Switzerland, they found this. And we would just say, uh, if you're a woman, low dose is 50, medium is 75, high is 100. Is that, I think that's right. And for men, it was 25 milligrams more. Something yeah. like that. And, yeah. and then the booster would be... Yeah. But then there's kind of, you know, okay, so these are people that have never had it before. If you're a person that wants to use a particular medicine, it's like because this one it really does have more toxic effect than, say, mushrooms or psychedelic, I mean, the idea is you want to clear the threshold so that you can work. Because if you take big, big doses, they, they will catch up with you. And, you know, some people are sensitive and get tired. So, so there's, and the more you take, the more grandiose you're going to get. You're going to get a big rush and you're going to have a bunch of ideas and you're going to do some work and then, but if you really want to work with the material over time, off and on, you want to, you want to find what the threshold is and take, you know, basically as little as possible. Uh, yes, man in the hat? Potentially get Yes, uh, uh, the question is, or it's more of a, the question is, he said he can go into a situation without MDMA where he had taken it before and he gets a, what he called a Pavlovian response and experiences, I think you're meaning some MDMA effects uh, just from being in that situation. Uh, there, in fact, was a small research study done using hypnotherapy uh, and Dr. Arthur Hastings uh, published this study, I'm not sure where, but he, this was all people who had had MDMA and then he did a hypnosis and, and reminded them of, of their experience. And I think some they did in a group of people. And they did some measurements, measuring parameters of experience. And people did experience a lot of the effects uh, that they had on MDMA from this sort of hypnotic induction. And so I, I believe that's valid, what you're saying. And it's because it's not just the drug. You know, the drug is just a chemical. It's inert. It's inert as flya dust. Uh, it's, it's what we do with it and where we are and who we're with and, and what they want. And it's, you know, the, uh, say, set, setting and drug are the three variables. And this, the mindset includes what's our mindset as the sitters. What's the person's mindset? You know, what is the physical environment? What are we going to do after it's over? All that is, is very important. So the drug is just, just part of it. Yes? He's asking if beta blockers had a cardiotonic or respiratory effect in addition to muscles. Uh, beta blockers basically prevent adrenaline from doing what it does. Um, Adrenaline makes your heart speed up when you're anxious. It makes your muscles tense. Uh, it, it can lower your blood pressure sometimes, which usually was not a problem. And it does not affect respiration at all. Um, it's a, it's a, as far as prescription drugs go, it's fairly safe. I mean, the worst that would happen with Enderol, assuming you had a normal heart, would be that if you stood up quickly, you, you might faint if your blood pressure got low. Yes? Have I given MDMA to diabetics? No. Because uh, MDMA affects the sympathetic nervous system, which affects insulin secretion, which could be a problem for diabetics. And I, 
at the moment. I can't explain which way, but I think uh, I think it promotes insulin secretion. But don't quote me on that. It would be it just it would not be good for that. And we we excluded diabetics for that reason. Yes. Oh, so the question is: Has any work been done with end of life care in older people? You know, we had one man who had terminal cancer and he, he was really the most amazing uh, benefit we got he, he was not really afraid of dying you know he, he had he had dealt with that he had four years of this horrible pain and from multiple myeloma and it really impacted his lifestyle uh, but I think that MDMA would be would be excellent for people who are afraid of dying and afraid of death because it's fear and, and, and those of you who read the MAPS uh, bulletin newsletter, you've, you've heard stories of people who have terminal illness who've used MDMA and found it very helpful to them. And the stimulation can be euphoric. It can feel really good, and that can open up all kinds of things. Right. And there is a study planned uh, to use MDMA for dying people at Harvard. Yes? The question is, are there any diabetics here who have used MDMA? Raise your hand. There you go. See, our people are different. You know, if you go to medical school, you're trained to, to uh, or deal with the worst possible outcome because if you're a doctor, sooner or later it happens. And it's really unpleasant. So, uh, you know, we just like to avoid negative things. It's, it's, if it's one in 10,000, that's like, ugh. You know, we, we don't want that. Yeah, so that's one reason that people would come to us and ask to have the experience. It, it, it's so experimental, especially at that point. We couldn't advocate it. We couldn't say, this would be good for you, or you should do this. It was like, no, you want to do this? Okay, I'm going to tell you everything I can think of, and then you'll have to decide about your medicine for yourself. Uh, half there? He's asking about a, a, a study out of Switzerland on the shortening of the dendrites in MDMA. I'm not familiar with that particular study. I mean, I'm, I you know, know of a lot of the studies on MDMA and brain damage. I'm, I'm really not very qualified to comment on them. I don't, I'm not an expert on translating animal research to human research. Uh, it's very controversial. There's evidence, it's like global warming, you know, there's evidence on to support your opinion. Uh, so, I'm sure the researchers might have uh, more, uh, better comments on that later on, but uh, it's hard to, huh? What's your personal feeling Well, my personal feeling is the doses we used and the frequency we used and the people used and we were healthy people and screened and with medical supervision did just fine. And, uh, and the people... Uh, you know, that Leo Zeff worked with back then, you know, we're in touch with some of those people and none of them have ever heard of any of those people ever having any problems with MDMA. I've never heard of any person who got MDMA in a medical setting, and there are quite, you know, quite a number now, I mean, in the dozens or so, I guess, have any, I mean, maybe other people know if I'm wrong, uh, had any serious problems with it. So uh, that's the best answer I can give you. There's just so little... No. Most studies are with animals, and it's hard to translate animal to human models, especially when you're talking about consciousness. But even toxicity, it's... Yes, in the yellow shirt. So, I'm not sure to understand totally, uh, but you've seen brain scans that show pictures of, like, holes, which are called holes in brains of people who've had MDMA, and, and you want to know if that is a concern. Is that correct? Uh, again, that's a complicated, controversial area. I, I do know that one study uh, later was methamphetamine. I don't know if that was a hole in the brain study. Uh, also, yeah, one of the you know one of the one of the really scary studies. This is really bad. Then, not that long ago, a couple of months ago, it was like, whoops. It was actually methamphetamine that wrong was drug. used. Also, brain scans, uh, you know, it's not like an x-ray. Brain scans are, are tweaked and enhanced to bring out 
what you're, what the investigator's looking for. Because it's like setting the controls on your TV, the brightness, the contrast, the color. I mean, they set all that because they're looking for fine differences. And, I mean, I don't want to get political about it, but uh, it really takes an expert, I mean, a major expert, to, to really interpret a brain scan as a ta- in the context of brain scan technology, methodology, all the... the marker chemicals used in brain scans, it's incredibly complex and again like global warming it's subject to subtle bias in any and all directions. So I think for us here, even the experts, I I don't know that we're brain scan experts, it's hard to be hard to judge. Oh yes, Uh uh-huh. No, when we did it, tryptophan was available, which is in 5-HTP is a precursor to tryptophan. So sometimes we would use tryptophan to sort of uh, you know, the theory that tryptophan is a serotonin precursor. Actually, just recently, I read, this is an animal study again, that boosting, you know, animals with either 5-HTP or tryptophan caused some negative effect or increased neurotoxicity. But there's probably 12 other variables in that experiment I, that I can't tell you about or explain. But it made me think, oh, well, you know, not necessarily a, a totally harmless thing in every case to use 5-HTP or tryptophan with MDMA. So it's just, you know, we're all different and uh, that's just the, you know, you're, you're on your own. Yes, he, he's asking about uh, giving low-dose SSRI antidepressants like in the Prozac family. Uh, after MDMA to mitigate side effects. I have heard of people doing this and I have heard that it is helpful. Uh, this is word of mouth. I do know that generally giving an SSRI before the session attenuates or reduces a lot of the MDMA effects based on how, how it works neurochemically. But afterwards, you know, just like you, I've, I've heard stories that you'll said, this helped me with my after effects. And I have not heard I have not heard negatives on that. Yes? She asked if you have any more experience with MDMA affected with anxiety. It was Anxiety is a, a big class of disorders, which includes sort of constant anxiety, uh, panic disorder, which are sudden overwhelming panic attacks. They're like different animals. So this was just people who had sudden overwhelming panic attacks, not people who were just sort of anxious in general or anxious about a certain situation in their life, that's a different a different animal and, and it involves the brain in different, in different ways that I couldn't explain, but statistically there are different groups of people with the ongoing exam, anxiety. Post-traumatic stress disorder is an anxiety disorder and anxiety is one of the common symptoms, but people, people you know, there's people who've reported that help them recover from their trauma and Dr. Mithofer here is doing a study now on post-traumatic stress disorder, using it for treatment, doesn't mean people aren't going to get anxious during the session and might might have panic attacks during or after the session. But overall, they still could their lives could be improved overall, even with that, because a panic attack is, is a brief thing. Yes, right here. Okay. She says, are we sitting currently, meaning giving MDMA currently? No, we have not given it since July 1st, 1985, when it was declared illegal by the DEA. And one last question. Uh, yes, you in the back there. Were the doses always administered orally? Yes. Okay, well, this is, uh, that's it, right? This is a, a great uh, audience. I'm surprised many people here. We're happy to answer other questions that didn't get answered uh, afterwards. And thanks for coming and enjoy the rest of the day. Thank the two of you so much. Uh, we really appreciate it. If it hasn't already hit you by now, just try to imagine how many tens of thousands of people could have already been healed from all kinds of mental illnesses had the U.S. government not begun its persecution of people who were obviously working with a wonder drug. 
Now, while I've used MDMA both in small groups and at large gatherings, I sometimes forget that it was first and foremost a medicine that can almost work miracles when in the hands of a skilled therapist. After listening to Michael Mithoffer last week and then hearing about the work that went on before MDMA was scheduled, I find it hard to believe that we are still living in such a dark age that this important medicine has been banned. You might recall that the last Dark Ages descended upon the Western world just after the fall of the Roman Empire. My guess is that one day historians will look at these times and call them a Dark Age as well. The Dark Age after the fall of the American Empire. I still find it amazing how deeply ethical the early MDMA healers were. Just think about this for a moment. George Greer went so far as to synthesize the MDMA himself so he could tell his patients that he knew without any doubt that it was 100% pure. Now that is the path that our best healers were on when the fascists in Washington took away their right to use this powerful medicine in their work. A thousand years from now, this insane war on people who want to alter their consciousness with something other than alcohol will be looked upon as barbaric, which it actually is, of course. In many ways, it is simply a continuation of the Christian persecution of people they called pagans. But uh, let's not get into that today. Getting back to uh, George and Riqua, I found abstracts of the papers that they wrote about their work, and I'll put links to them with the program notes for this podcast. And if you haven't been to our program notes blog yet, I hope you'll find the time to do so sometime soon. I've just about got all of the podcast notes transferred to this blog now, and it'll make it a lot easier to find particular programs in in a number of different ways. And you can get there from links on our main matrixmasters.com and matrixmasters.com slash podcast pages, or you can uh, go there directly by typing www.podcast.com psychedelicsalon.org in your browser's address box. Don't even need the www, I don't think. Getting back to today's talk, uh, at around the 10-minute mark of this podcast is where Riqua described the importance of a formal agreement by the participants before their uh, session began. And if I remember correctly, uh, Ann Shulgin also talked about this in her discussion of psychedelic psychotherapy in the shadow which you can hear in podcast number 21. And for what it's worth, I highly recommend doing this even for recreational get-togethers. Knowing where the boundaries are before you begin is a big help later on, particularly when your personal boundaries have melted away. And if you all agree ahead of time that there will be no violence, no sex, no leaving before an agreed-upon time, well, things like that, If you all agree on those things before uh, beginning your journey together, I think you'll find both the set and setting are greatly improved. And like Rico said, uh, even someone who is deeply altered can uh, somehow pull themselves together when reminded about their prior agreement and uh, then settle back down into the rhythm of the group. And speaking of rhythm, uh, I got an email the other day from Shen who told me about the Ethno Super Lounge which is a network of musicians based in Australia, Japan, and India who come together to share their songs and sounds in the spirit of unity, healing, and transcendence. Now, their, uh, their website's at www.ethnosuperlounge, all one word, dot com. And I've, I've listened to some of the music there and really liked it. Uh, you know, if you're a lover of world music, you might want to uh, check it out. Shen uh, also wrote, uh, It was last year when I was staying with Chris. Uh, Chris, by the way, is a mutual friend of ours. When I was staying with Chris that he played a Terrence video. I think it was called Machine Consciousness and Psychedelic Consciousness. It completely captured my attention, and from there I soon found your podcast. Speaking of Machine Consciousness, I know you can download or maybe buy the video online, but I wonder if it's possible to put just the audio into a podcast. That remains one of the most fascinating Terrence talks I've heard. 
So uh, you might want to take a look for that video. I'm, I'm sure it's on the net somewhere. I'd, I've got so many things scheduled right now, I don't know if I'm going to uh, have the time to do that myself, but some of you might want to go out and uh, check that out, and we'll put it up on the blog somewhere if you find it. And a special uh, thank you, uh, by the way, goes out to my friends Carol and Chris, who have uh, been on the road for, well, I guess it's going on three years now. I'm not sure where they are right at the moment, but uh, when they were here visiting us a couple of weeks ago, they said they were detaching from the net and heading to the desert for a while. So I loaded up their laptop with all of the previous podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon and told them that maybe they'd find something interesting to listen to some cold night on the desert. Now, I don't know where uh, they were when they first joined us here in the salon, but uh, I guess they liked it because a couple of days ago I got a really nice letter from them by way of snail mail, and uh, they enclosed a very generous donation. So, Carol and Chris, uh, wherever you are, when you finally uh, reconnect to the net and download this podcast, I want you to know that your donation is greatly appreciated. Thank you so very much. And uh, I look forward to seeing you guys again on your next swing through Southern California. Another surprise came when uh, a donation came in from Chiba. And I noticed that he had a a website named uh, ChibaCabra.com. That's C-H-E-E-B-A-C-A-B-R-A.com. I hope I'm saying that right. And so I checked it out and discovered even more musicians here in our midst. Uh, I listened to a couple of their demos and wrote to thank them and ask if I could play one of their songs at the end of a podcast. And uh, here's Chiba's answer. About two years ago, I typed Terrence McKenna in iTunes and found your podcast. I've been a loyal listener ever since. It's something I really look forward to every week. My donation is just a way for me to thank you and to offer a little support for all the work you put into it. Thanks for checking out the music on my website. You have no idea what a thrill it would be for me and my friends if you mentioned the Chibacabra on your podcast. Even more, play the song. Well, Chibacabra, I thank you for your kind words, and I'm looking forward to playing some of your music in the weeks ahead once we can uh, work out the details and make sure your copyright's protected, etc. Now, I got another uh, email from Michael, who uh, you might remember goes by the handle a dime short. And I can tell you one reason uh, Michael goes by that handle is that he's also uh, our most frequent contributor to the salon. But now he has uh, also volunteered some time and uh, is going to help complete the back program notes that we haven't uh, uh, finished up yet. Now, here's what Michael says. So I decided, since I'm fortunate enough to make teeth in a dental lab allowing me plenty of audio time, that I might as well start taking some notes. I'm uh, starting on linear drugs slash nonlinear societies and will work up from there. I figure it's mostly beneficial to me, but I might as well send them your way when done. But for my absence of a biochemistry degree and a lackadaisical understanding of terms such as, and here he types several terms that I'm not about to try to pronounce. (laughs) I may not end up with as descriptive notes on some of Sasha's rapid-fire speeches. I hope to soon change this. Well, I'll tell you what, Michael, your uh, understanding of biochemistry, I'm sure, is far greater than mine, and so I really appreciate you tackling uh, all these talks, particularly Sasha's. And and don't worry, anything you get done along those lines is going to be a big help. Now, I feel uh, a little uncomfortable even mentioning this, but we've received several PayPal donations of uh, exactly two cents. Now, I'm not sure if this was just a test to see if you were making your payment to the right podcast or if it was a slip of the decimal point when you entered the amount of your donation. But in any event, uh, hey, thank you for your kind thoughts. And uh, even though PayPal takes the entire two cents, uh, they're still losing money on the transaction. So if you've received a strange entry of only a few cents on your credit card statement, well, uh, that's probably what caused it. And, uh, and hey, I'm not complaining. I'm, I'm just happy that uh, people out there are thinking about keeping the salon on the air. And uh, I guess actually on the air isn't technically correct for podcasting. Maybe uh, since most of the miles traveled by this podcast to your MP3 player uh, were covered over fiber optic cables, 
Well, then I guess uh, I should say uh, thank you to all of our donors for keeping us on the light. Actually, I kind of like that, you know. Hey, thanks for keeping us on the light. And uh, that also goes out to all of you wonderful speakers who have been so kind as to let me podcast your talks. And while I'm at it, uh, hey, this goes out to you, too. If you didn't join me here in the Psychedelic Salon each week, I wouldn't have any reason to keep these podcasts going. So thank you. Thank you for being here uh, with all of us on the light each week. And if, uh, hey, if you're in the same position that I'm in right now, uh, now that I'm retired and suddenly find that $20 is a really large sum of money, well, uh, something you could do to help us uh, all out a little is to recommend this podcast to a couple of your friends. You know, ultimately, uh, what this series of podcasts is all about is helping people who are interested in the never-ending possibilities of consciousness exploration uh, and helping them get into closer contact with one another and with the information that's uh, of interest to us all. And that uh, friend or co-worker that you tell about these podcasts uh, doesn't necessarily have to be somebody you already know shares an interest in these matters. You know, uh, I can remember back to uh, quite a few years ago when I was still a corporate wage slave. Well, there were a couple instances where I worked really closely with a person for a, a year or more before we discovered that we both smoked dope. <laughs> so uh, if you're still working in the belly of the beast, I know how difficult it can be to find like-minded people. All I know for sure is uh, that there are far more psychedelic people living deep underground than anybody can imagine. You really might be surprised at uh, who comes out of the psychedelic closet when you start talking about these things. And if these podcasts can uh, be a conversation opener for you, well, that would make me very happy. So uh, a big thank you to you for telling people about these podcasts, and particularly to those of you who are posting links to the psychedelicsalon.org on your websites and on your online postings. Things like that and your emails are what keep me going and... Uh, most of all, just thanks for listening. It's nice to know you're out there. And uh, to let you know that I do listen to your program requests, I'm working to pull together several interviews with some people who know a, a lot about ayahuasca. And uh, these interviews actually got set in motion when I received the following email from James. Me and some friends are going to Ecuador for a couple of weeks uh, beginning in May. And uh, we've been planning this trip for several years now and have arranged to spend a lot of time with some very reputable shamans. Some of us have a moderate to high level of experience with psychedelics, while others are brand new and quite nervous about the whole endeavor. Listening to the Psychedelic Salon the other week, me and my friends were impressed with what you had to say regarding ayahuasca after the Matt Palomary talk and decided that we would all benefit greatly, as I'm sure many other listeners would as well, if we could hear more before our trip. Pun intended. <laughs> and James isn't the only one who's uh, been asking for more information about this important sacred medicine. So, in a couple of days, Matt Palomary is uh, stopping by here to record an interview about ayahuasca from the point of view of the indigenous people who use the vine, also, Charlie Grobe has agreed to uh, give us an interview about the research project he participated in, along with Dennis McKenna and several others, uh, where they conducted the first formal study of the regular ayahuasca users in the uh, UDV church in Brazil. Now, I'll try to get these interviews podcast in the near future, definitely before your trip, you guys. And, uh, but next week's program is going to be the uh, Planque Norte lecture that Dr. Preet Chopra gave at Burning Man last year. And if all goes well, I'll have uh, Matt Palomary's ayahuasca stories out to you the following week. So I guess I'd better cut this off for now and uh, get working on some of these future podcasts. But uh, it sure was good being here with you again today. Before I go, I should mention, as always, that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 license. If you have any questions about that, just click the link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at matrixmasters.com slash podcasts. If you still have questions, just send them to me in an email. The address is lorenzo at matrixmasters.com. 
Thanks again to my friends at Chateau Hayuk for the use of your music here in the salon, and also to George and Riqua, not only for braving the challenges of the playa to give a Palenque Norte lecture, but also for your wonderful research. And so, until next time, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Thank you.